On March 27, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with Timothy Snyder, Bird White House and Professor of History at Yale University, titled Resisting Tyranny, Lessons from the European 20th Century. The seminar was moderated by Moshik Temkin, Associate Professor of History and Public Policy at HKS. Again, uh, my name is Moshe Pimkin. I'm on the faculty here at the Kennedy School, and I help run the initiative on history and public policy uh, at Harvard Kennedy School. And on behalf of the initiative, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome you all to this uh, special event. Um, a few words of thanks before we uh, begin. I want to thank the uh, Ash Center for uh, uh, Democratic Governance, uh, the staff who are uh, doing all the legwork around you, um, and the, uh, especially the, the Offit family who are here with us and who support uh, making this evening possible. Um, our speaker, uh, who is sitting here next to me, uh, really needs no introduction. It's usually uh, a sort of uh, cliche uh, people say the speaker needs no introduction. Often that's not true. The speaker does need an introduction. So, uh, this is the uh, genuine article of uh, the person who needs no uh, introduction, uh, but you'll get one anyway because we respect protocol here at the Kennedy School. So, uh, Timothy Snyder is the Bird Whitehausen Professor of History um, at Yale. Uh, in the mere 20 years that he has been a professor of uh, European history, uh, he has been disturbingly, uh, almost unimaginably prolific. Uh, so uh, reading the list of books he has published, fellowships he has had, honors he has received, uh, would really take up all our time, uh, at least, so I won't do that. Uh, I'll just mention a few of his most uh, recent works uh, leading up to today's event. Uh, I want to mention Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, which came out in uh, 2010, Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning uh, from 2015. And in between those two uh, major works, there was, of course, his uh, extraordinary collaboration uh, with the late uh, Tony Jutt, Thinking the 20th Century. Uh, Professor Snyder uh, is also a prominent public intellectual and commentator, writing regularly for uh, the New York Review of Books uh, and a host of uh, other outlets, where he has been, uh, among other things, a highly uh, critical and vigilant uh, analyst, uh, especially of uh, the Putin regime in Russia and its, uh, and its universe. Uh, and this week, uh, he made his debut, I think it was his debut, as a primetime television personality. Tells you something about uh, the success of his uh, new book. Um, I first asked uh, Professor Snyder uh, to give a talk, uh, the first time I started talking to him about giving a talk here, uh, was back in uh, December. Uh, so this all began with a post on Facebook uh, which Professor Snyder put up, uh, I think, on November 15, so that was less than a week after the traumatic uh, presidential election. The post began with the words, uh, quote, Americans are no wiser than the Europeans 
who saw democracy yield to fascism, Nazism, or communism. Our one advantage is that we might learn from their experience. Now is a good time to do so. And there followed 20 lessons drawn from the European experience of the 20th century for what Americans can do to resist the fates that had befallen uh, European democracies, especially in the 1930s. <clears throat> Professor Snyder's uh, post was shared uh, thousands of times. Uh, I haven't seen the latest count. Um, I think that one important reason for its going viral was not simply its implicitly dim view of the incoming president, but rather its emphasis against this kind of backdrop of the shock, grief, <coughs> anger, and demoralization that many felt, um, the emphasis on what ordinary people can do to protect their democracy and their institutions. And it was this hopefulness, or at least the possibility of hopefulness, drawing on a profound knowledge of history that made Professor Snyder's words stand out at the time uh, in an ocean of uh, otherwise alarmist and catastrophic responses. At the same time, he had no patience for an even more common set of reactions, especially, I think, uh, in some circles, policy circles, media circles, uh, reactions that uh, normalized uh, the president, that saw silver linings everywhere, and especially that clung to uh, a sort of American exceptionalism, according to which the United States, by its very essence, is immune to the things that had damaged or destroyed democracy in many other places. Indeed, Professor Snyder's insistence that if we are to look at history to make sense of our present moment, we have to step out of the comfort zone of our own national history and instead turn to the histories of other places. That, I think, was one of the more striking features of his argument. In the meantime, uh, Professor Snyder expanded his initial post into a uh, short and now best-selling book on tyranny. Uh, the book is brief, but there is much in it to think about uh, and debate for all of us, and that's what I hope we can do this evening. In his prologue uh, to this book, Professor Snyder writes, and I quote, history can familiarize and it can warn, end quote. And I mention this quote because uh, I think it captures in large part what we are doing at the uh, Initiative on History and Public Policy here. We created this initiative with the explicit goal of linking our interpretations of the past with our approach to contemporary public problems. We believe that thinking about human affairs necessarily involves an estimate about the future <coughs> derived from the experience of the past. As a consequence, History can and should serve as a basis for conscientious and successful policymaking. And in turn, conscientious and successful policymaking should be based on historical awareness and reflection. In other words, we want to bring history to the center of public affairs 
and policy concerns, though not just as a store of data to be employed or as fodder for a political argument, but as a way of thinking, as a mode of inquiry about the world, one that acknowledges the uniqueness of the past while also insisting that we too are part of history. And so with that, please join me in welcoming Timothy Snyder. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have this invitation. Professor Timothy, it's wonderful to see people from whom I have learned um, of, of all generations in, in the audience. What I'd like to do, since, since Mojik has basically already told you what the book is about, it's a short book, right? <laughs> what I would like to do is, is respond to, to Mojik's invitation to me, which was to say a word about the reactions to the book and to say a word about the origins of the book. I'll be very brief about the reactions and say um, a longer word about the origins. Uh, what I will try to do is give you a sense of how the arguments that I make in the book or how the, the, the fully prescriptive, fully normative case I make in the book, um, because the book is it's a manifesto and it's a manual, it's a guide to action how the normativity of the book relates to some of the arguments that I think I've understood from Central and East European history. So let me start briefly with, with the reaction, right? The, the reaction is always the one thing that the author is totally unqualified to talk about because the one person who doesn't or at least shouldn't read the book is the author and the one person who can't react fresh to it on the entire planet is the author. Nevertheless, there are, there are three things at least which are, which are noteworthy. One, which, which Moshe was kind enough to mention, is that I think this book um, was the best-selling book on the planet in the last 72 hours, right? Um, yeah. Second, um, this book has been published not just in the form that, that Moshe showed you, but also each of the lessons was, was transformed into an original work of art and those 20 posters are now hanging in London in a public art installation, which I think is the first time that a book has actually been published in that way. There may be historians of the book here who can correct me, but I find that to be really interesting as a reaction. Um, third reaction, maybe on the other side of, of the ledger somehow, is that, um, let me try to be very precise about how I phrase this, Someone using a uniquely pro-Russian slogan has hacked um, the Amazon UK page uh, for the book, which I believe is also a first in the history of publishing. Um, Amazon is a very big company and doesn't like to be hacked and isn't hacked very often. The person who hacked Amazon did it very thoughtfully um, with a couple of inside jokes and with a slogan, um, Make the World Great Again, which those of you who follow Russia know can be found on posters in the Russian countryside right now. So, so much, so much for the, oh, and if you're a reporter, write about that. <laughs> it's interesting that someone would be taking on Amazon in this way, right? That's interesting. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that someone would actually try to derail what we would take to be a normally secure process, that is to say, the publication of, of a book. This doesn't happen every day, and it's a comfort, I mean, it's a, I won't say I welcome it, that would be too strong, but it's a confirmation of some of the arguments that I make in the book. It's probably a confirmation of half of the arguments that I make in the book, in fact, okay. All right, so um, the origins. 
One of the themes that, that, that I developed together with, with my friend Tony Judd in the book that Moshek was kind enough to mention, um, Thinking the 20th Century, is the theme of being right. That is the theme of, um, of, of, of what, it means to, what it means to be right and perhaps how being right is insufficient. I think being right is insufficient in a couple of ways. The first way that being right is insufficient is that if you're right about a matter of public affairs, no one will ever remember. Because if you turn, it's, inter it's an interesting epistemic paradox, but if you are right ahead of everyone else, when everyone else figures out the thing that you figured out, the only thing they will not remember is that you got it right before they did, right? That literally never happens. And so, the, so people will say things like, well, nobody predicted the end of the Soviet Union, which of course is not true, right? And this is, and this is a general, like this is a general fact of journalism, social science, whatever it might be. People who make correct prediction, predictions do not get rewarded, right? People who formulate the correct prediction after it's happened in a way which is appealing um, get rewarded, right? So in that way, being right is insufficient. But there's another deeper way in which in which being right, so being, being right basically is kind of, it's, it's forgettable, it's forgettable, but unforgivable, right, being right? Another way that being right is um, perhaps a little more subtly or more, more profoundly is insufficient, is that being right begs the question of what comes next. And in, in the book with, with, with Tony, we developed a theme in some of the later chapters of what you do with being right. Because one of the things I was interested with about Tony Jeff, and I know some of you were taught by have read, is that um, as he matured, he shifted from being someone who was so, who, who, as, as he was when he was young, brutally so, concerned with being right, to someone who was more concerned with being, on the one hand, just, or making the world a more just place, and on the other hand, sharing a plurality of truths, right? And so in the book, we develop this theme of, of, of the two vocations that a historian might pick up. That is, if you're a proper historian, you can't be both a public advocate and a historian at the same time, because they're two different things. You have to take the impulse to be right, which is a kind of unhealthy, and maybe even immature impulse, and transform it into making the world right, right? I won't say making the world great again, because that's slowly mistaken, right? Um, and the again in question is the same again as never again, in case anyone hasn't figured that out. Um, so, uh, but making the world a more just place, making the world a place that is more right, and the different pursuit of pursuing the plurality of truth, which is, which is, which is history. And I mention all of that because it should be obvious to you that the, the book that Moshe has been kind enough to invite me to talk about is not a history book, right? It's, it's a normative book, it's, it's a book of advocacy, which draws on some of the things that I think I understand from history. Okay, now, let me try to give justice to some of the people who were right about Trump. Um, in the autumn of uh, 2016, in a Mexican restaurant in southwestern Ohio, two Russian journalists bumped into a Ukrainian journalist. Why were they all there? They were covering Trump rallies, right? Using, using the non-existent funds that they had, they were following Trump around what was then, uh, what, what, what then appeared to be a crucial battleground state, Ohio. Um, these were people who had covered war in Syria, war in Ukraine. These were people, in the Russian case, who had worked for independent media and then been forced out. These are people who had seen a thing or two, in other words. And what was striking about that meeting in a Mexican restaurant is that as these, as these East European reporters talked to each other, they all shared one common as presumption, right? One which set them apart from the tremendous majority of American observers at the time, namely that it was obvious that Trump was going to win. 
everybody, that it was obvious that Trump was going to win. And in my experience, looking back at 2016 and trying to give credit where credit was due, the three groups of people who, who correctly predicted that Trump was going to win the election were people like first, um, first, uh, you're, you're checking that UK hat, aren't you, back there? You're checking that UK hat. Yeah, write about it, write about it. Yeah, that's possible. Awesome. Yeah, checking the UK hat. It's good stuff. Okay. Um, the, uh, so the, the first group would be um, would be people who who work on Eastern Europe. So um, journalists from Eastern Europe, essayists on Eastern Europe. Peter Pomerantsev, right, who wrote Every, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. He was Facebooking all year that Trump is going to win, that this stuff works, right? Um, uh, Sławomir Szerkowski, the founder of the New Left in Poland, the head of a group called um, Political Critique. He was Facebooking all year that Trump is going to win, since this was not only possible, but, 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 but probable, right? So people from Eastern Europe are one group. Another group of people who seemed to think that it was possible that Trump was were, um, were uh, uh, people who write about propaganda. Right. So, so Jason Stanley, who's a philosopher, um, who writes about propaganda, after he saw the first Republican debate, wrote an op-ed saying Trump was going to win on the basis of how Trump presented himself, on the basis of the kinds of arguments that Trump was making about how, about how since the situation, since we're in an oligarchical situation anyway, why not vote for your own oligarch? Right. So that's the second group, and then the third group were people who I will call anti-totalitarian thinkers, of whom there are still a few among us. Right. People like Vladimir Tismanianu um, at Maryland. Who again was faced like spent 2016 providing basically a digest of the history of totalitarianism on his Facebook page. It was actually an extraordinary, extraordinarily impromptu history of the great figures of totalitarian and anti-totalitarian thought. And why why was Professor Smyrna doing that? Because he had the sense also, right? This this anti-totalitarian sense, like the sense that it's not about it's not about left and right. It's about certain kinds of human experiences and passions that certain kinds of politics and politicians can get to. So those are the three groups to whom I would like to give credit about uh, for, 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 getting, for getting things right. And it's in a way from those kinds of people that I drew the inspiration to write the book. So as, as Moshe quite correctly describes, I mean, this arose basically in a moment. Um, I mean, if it... If the words on the page, if you're kind enough to read the book and the words on the page seem right to you, remember that I had to have written them months ago for them to be in your hands now, right? I didn't write them today, right? I, there's not a word in the book I would change, by the way, but I had to write this right after the election. The inauguration hadn't happened. None of those things had happened, right? So with the things that I say, for example, about Russia, um, start sort of ring true, that would be an indication that um, working from these kinds of historical intuitions uh, can work. Right? So in other words, the existence, if the book seems like a plausible document, that itself is a confirmation of the method of the book. Okay, what's the method of the book? I am basically drawing from, from, from three kinds of sources here. Um, the first is, as Moshek was kind enough to mention, um, the, the fact that I have been working on these kinds of issues for, I haven't been a professor for 20 years. I, I was an unemployed for a long time before that, which was like the, the best years of my life and where I learned the languages. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, just the unwritten memoir down and out, more some frog. But there was a very fruitful period of unemployment from which Harvard actually res rescued me at the last moment. Um, before I got the one good job I've ever held, which is, a, which is at that other place. Um, the, uh, the <laughs> Yale is that other place. <laughs> that other place is Yale. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> actually, wait, I'm sure that you're going to say, okay, so, 
So as Moshe was kind of to mention, one of the sources is that I've spent about 25 years learning, learning languages, reading archives, and trying to make sense of some of the darker chapters of European history. And so that when I come to America, I don't, although I'm, I'm American, right, I can, I can throw a curveball, I can make an apple pie. Um, although I'm an American, when I look at public affairs in this country, I don't do it in the kind of pixelated day-by-day -day way that I think many Americans would. I look at it askance. I look at it from, from an angle. And I, I'm sure I miss a lot of things, but I may see things that other people perhaps don't. The second source would be the teachers. So as I became a historian of Eastern and Central Europe, my teachers, and my literal teachers, but also their teachers, my figurative teachers, my, the, the teachers of the lineage, um, which, to which I tried to, which I tried to associate myself, were people who had lived under communism, right, or, and had lived under fascism, and had lived under national socialism, right. So um, it's no accident, as people like to say, back then, that my doctoral supervisor had been interned under communism and had been what we would now call a child survivor of, of the Holocaust. In, in, in Warsaw. It's no accident that the um, that my doctoral examiner, who I quote, it, it, who, to, who gives the epigraph to the book, Leszek Kolkowski, um, he says, he said to me, um, you know, in politics, being deceived is no excuse. That's the epigraph of the book. It's no accident that he was one of the greater, I think, historians and philosophers of the 20th century, was expelled from Poland in 1968. People whom I admired and who later became my acquaintances or friends, like Otto Mitnik in Poland or Václav Havel, in Czechoslovakia, were people who were thinking about a kind of totalitarian con condition. These were my teachers, directly or indirectly, and in some way the book arises from them. In some way the book is an attempt not to pay homage so much as to, as to revive their thinking in the ways which I think it is probably most relevant. And then finally, since we're on the subject of, of, of generations, I've been doing this long enough um, that I now have my own students, literally and figuratively that I, I, I'm now friendly with people in their teens, 20s, and 30s who have come from Russia or Ukraine or Poland and who work on history and related fields. And I have seen how they have experienced and sometimes tried to resist um, regime change in their own country, whether it be Russia or Poland or Ukraine. I have seen them in turn, right, just as my teachers were, I have seen them in turn be detained, arrested, imprisoned, tortured, beaten, and sometimes and it is that experience, trying to learn from those who are younger than me, that also informs this book. A number of the insights, indeed a number of the terms, such as corporal politics, come from people who are a generation younger than myself. So those are the three sources. What, what does the book try to do? It, it is, on the one hand, um, it's very much a defense of a very straightforward kind of history. The move I make at the beginning is is to cite the founding fathers with capital F's, which is something I never thought I would do. Right? I mean, I, like as American as I came to me in my private life, I never thought I'd write a book that has the founding fathers with capital letters and Aristotle and Plato all on page one, um, and the founding fathers' relationship to Aristotle and Plato on page one. But there, but, but there you have it. The, the the move with which I start the book is to say that the founding fathers were the opposite of American exceptionalists, right? There was no America, and their primary concern was with how they, their understanding of their own lack of an exceptional character, right? Their primary concern was how you prevent democratic republics from failing as democratic Greece had failed, as Republican Rome had failed. And, and the, the, the method of the book is to say, yes, they, they were right to be animated by that concern, and now we have 200 odd more years of experience with the failure of democracies and republics to draw on 
um, that the, 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 the particular experiences I know something about are in Central and Eastern Europe, hence let's concentrate on, on those. So the book is making a case for history against some things, right? It's making a case for history against what I call in the epilogue the politics of inevitability, um, which some people call neoliberalism or Tina, there's no alternative, um, against the politics of alternative, what, alter, uh, inevitability, whether it's whether it's a right inversion or a left inversion, and they're both, right? Um, you know, the arc of history bending towards something, that's the left wing version. Um, the right wing version is capitalism, democracy, happiness. But it, they actually, you know, if you'll forgive the Hegelian move, it's actually the same thing. In both cases, you're imagining that you know what history, where history is going, therefore the details don't matter, the concepts don't matter. And the danger, I think, is that when people raised in that atmosphere, or people who have come to believe something like that, as so many of us have come to believe, are shocked by something unexpected, when it turns out that things are not inevitable, when it turns out that there is an alternative, right? And that alternative is like, I don't know, kleptocratic, authoritarian, fascism, whatever. But when it turns out that there is an alternative loose in the world, it's so easy to shift from one ahistorical attitude, what I, which I call inevitability, to another, which is what I call eternity, right? The, 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 and the one, everything's always going to turn out well. In the other, everything's always going to turn out badly, right? And so to use the example of, of my students, which I'm sure doesn't apply, at all to Harvard students, ha. Um, in the one version, right, everything's going to be fine, so we might as well work in finance, right? And in the other version, everything's going to turn out badly, so we might as well work in finance. <laughs> and the, the important thing, hot guilty laughter in row nine, um, the important thing is to find heart palpitations in row five. The important thing is to find that middle way which actually is history. And the case I make for history is something like this, that history familiarizes, right, in the broadest sense, um, and I say this with a certain amount of apprehension in front of people who actually work in world history, but in the broadest sense, the first globalization brought us tendencies which should now be familiar to us in the middle of the second globalization, and if we recognize that, we can feel a little bit more at home in the world. Um, that history empowers, history gives you a sense of structure, but if you have a sense of structure, if you have a sense of limits, then you also know where the opportunities are that history ethicizes, if you have a sense of historical moment, you know, if you have that aesthetic or philosophical sense of, of, of partaking in a moment, you also must have a sense of your own responsibility for that moment, not for everything, but for part of that moment. That history also offers, as I was stressing before, companionship, right? That one, one, one sees that people wiser than oneself have confronted difficulties resembling one's own but more severe and have reacted in ways that are instructive or, or, or useful, but also one simply has the sense of company, right? So, I mean, as Miloš said, like, what, what, what's left? What's left is responsibility, a sense of responsibility in the belly of the whale, right? One, has, one can have company in the belly of the whale if, if one reads, if one accepts that company need not be just the people around us who are naturally confused and, 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 and grieving or perhaps exalting, but also people have confronted similar situations in, in the past. The final thing that history can do, and this is of course the heart of, of the book, and you can talk about it more, is that history, history can instruct. Now, when I say, so when I say the beginning of the book, um, right after the passage that Professor Timken read, that, um, that, that we're no wiser, that follows shortly after that is the bit where I say history, history does not repeat but does instruct. Now I mean that in two senses. It can instruct us about well, how we might react to the given situation, but we also must be aware that history instructs people who think that, for example, who think the 1930s weren't actually such a bad decade. And that would be, by the way, an emerging consensus 
from Russia <laughs> through much of Europe to the United States. One of the things which I find intellectually interesting, although morally horrifying, is the way that thinkers and thoughts of the 1930s implicitly, but sometimes explicitly, have been revived, um, just as right-wing governance and right-wing voting has been revived, all the way across what we used to call the West, but for which we're now going to have to have some kind of different name, I think. Um, no, because when it was the West, the whole idea was that history moved from West to East, and that's not happening anymore. History is now moving from East to, to West, right? It couldn't be so simple about things. So, so the, 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 the point that I'm trying to make is that history can instruct us. And one of the reasons why perhaps it must instruct us it's, is that it's already instructing the other side, right? It's already instructing Mr. Bennett. Um, it's already instructing Mr. Putin, right? It's already it's instructing people who are looking at the 1930s as a positive example. Okay, so very briefly then, so that, so that there's enough time for all of us to talk, I will just mention some of the intellectual sources of, of a few of of, of the lessons. So um, lesson, lesson number one um, is, is, is not to obey in advance. Um, did we hand out those nice postcards? I had props. Did we hand those out? Oh, they're so useful as props. I'm going to hand them out. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not food. They're, they're <laughs> <laughs> responsibility for the face of the world. Lesson six is be wary of paramilitaries. Lesson seven is be reflective if you must be armed. In a fairly straightforward way, although we haven't been talking about what those all mean, in a fairly straightforward way, those draw from a very conventional historiography of national socialism, um, especially profound works about the beginning of the regime change and the meaning, and the meaning of the Jewish question at the beginning by admiral historians such as Petr Longovic. Lessons, um, lessons 8, 12, and 13, which are stand out, um, make eye contact and small talk, and practice corporeal politics. Practice corporeal politics, by the way, just means get your body onto the street, right? The golden rule that if you're doing something on social media, you shouldn't be doing it unless it leads to people changing their physical behavior in the three-dimensional world. If it doesn't lead to that, you shouldn't be doing it, right? You should be reading the book. Um, or, 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 or taking a jog, right? I mean, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, except like, negatively, don't spend so much time on the internet. Um, so those lessons, 8, 12, and 13, are all pretty straightforwardly drawn from post, I'll call it post-totalitarian thought, or if you want, East European existentialist thought, right? Um, a, a school of thought which, um, about which I learned a huge amount from, from Marcy Shore. Um, people, whether it's Havel in Czechoslovakia or some of the contemporary Ukrainians who write about the Maidan, people who we tended to categorize as liberals, but who were not at all coming from an Anglo-Saxon liberal tradition, but who were coming from precisely the history of phenomenology, and who were conceptualizing individualism much more in terms of authenticity and therefore example. 
right, as opposed to individualism as a unit of analysis or a unit of, of, of utility or freedom um, in our external sense. The individual as, as, as a kind of irreducible um, test of, of, of authenticity. Those lessons all fairly straightforwardly come from, from that tradition. Um, and in the book, I, I, I use long citations of people that, that, that I, I, I admire. Um, and, to, and, and Sam Moyne totally outed me like years ago on this question in a, in a review of Bloodlands. He said, Snyder comes from this tradition. So I'm here to say, Professor Moyne, you're right. Um, so don't ask the question, okay? That's my from Sam Moyne. I done. Um, the lessons 17 and 18 listen for dangerous words um, and be calm when the unthinkable arise. The, these, these are lessons which come from a group of people that you might call the linguists of totalitarianism, Victor Klemperer, for example, in Germany in the 1930s, or again, Havel in the 1970s, or Hannah Arendt, or Michal Głowinski, who's essentially the Polish version of, of, of Victor Klemperer. He wrote one, Głowinski wrote wonderful books about, um, about the language of communism in Poland and has written wonderful essays now about the language of authoritarianism in, in Poland. And then um, lessons, lesson number 10, which I'm gonna close with and which I'm gonna read to you, um, the lesson of, of believe in truth, um, arises from, um, a, 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 as you'll recognize when I read it, a whole number of sources um, within the intellectual history of, of, of Europe as, as a whole, but it might best be understood as a kind of confrontation between two traditions, which I think are very much in competition with each other right now, um, which I think of as Isaiah Berlin versus Ivan Ilin, right? Isaiah Berlin being the author of the idea that um, there is no one irreducible good. Um, there, are, there are multiple irreconcilable goods, right? Um, which if you take it as an epistemic position would be the position that I was trying to describe when I was speaking in my conversation with Tony Jeff earlier, namely that it's not that you look for the one big truth and try to be right, it's that you accept that there are multiple irreconcilable, inherently plural truths, and you try to gather up several of them if, if, if you can. That's Isaiah Berlin. Um, on the other side, you have Ivan Ealing, who, if the name is not known to you, is um, a very interesting, and I think at some points, I think quite profound, um, Russian right-wing Hegelian, um, a supporter of fascism, who believed that there was only one truth and that truth broke when God tried and failed to create the world and therefore the entire contingent accidental character of the world is, is sinful and the things which we might appreciate as individual experiences, individual passions or as facts are themselves evil. And the only truth is, a, is, is the one truth which can only be found, of course, in God, but naturally also, I'm simplifying the 40 volumes a little bit, but not, um, it's 20 in German and it's 20 in Russian. And I read them all, and this is what I wanted to be writing about. Right? This is what I just—I was just finishing writing about this in November. Anyway, but but it, so in God, but also not surprisingly in in Russia, it turns out to be a kind of excuse for for authoritarianism in Russia, but also by extension anywhere else. So there is a kind—I mean, no one is using these names. Well, the Russians are talking about Elin actually rather a lot, although no one is listening. Um, few people are using these names, but there was this kind of contest, I think, between these two traditions, a kind of pluralism and a kind of, a kind of monism. Um, so I'll just, I'll close by reading lesson 10, if, if you'll bear with me, which is, which is believe in truth. 10, believe in truth. To abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then no one can criticize power because there is no basis upon which to do so. 
If nothing is true, then all is spectacle. The biggest wallet pays for the most blinding lights. You submit to tyranny when you renounce the difference between what you want to hear and what is actually the case. This renunciation of reality can feel natural and pleasant, but the result is your demise as an individual, and thus the collapse of any political system that depends upon individualism. As observers of totalitarianism, such as Victor Klemko noted, truth dies in four modes, all of which we have just witnessed. The first mode is the open hostility to verifiable reality which takes the form of presenting inventions and lies as if they were facts. The president does this at a high rate and at a fast pace. One attempt during the 2016 campaign to track his utterances found that 78% of his factual claims were false. This proportion is so high that it makes the correct assertions seem like unintended oversights on the path to total fiction. Demeaning the world as it is begins the creation of a fictional counterworld. The second mode is shamanistic incantation. As Klimper noted, the fascist style depends upon, quote, endless repetition, unquote, designed to make the fictional plausible and the criminal desirable. The systematic use of nicknames such as Lion Ted and Crooked Hillary displace certain character traits that might more appropriately have been affixed to the president himself. Yet through blunt repetition over Twitter, our president managed the transformation of individuals into stereotypes that people then spoke aloud. At rallies, the repeated chants of build that wall and lock her up did not describe anything that the president had specific plans to do, but their very grandiosity established a connection between him and his audience. The next mode is magical thinking, or the open embrace of contradiction. The president's campaign involved promises of cutting taxes for everyone, eliminating the national debt, and increasing spending on both social policy and the national defense. These promises mutually contradict. It is as if a farmer said he were taking an egg from the hen house, boiling it whole, and serving it to his wife, and also poaching it and serving it to his children, and then returning it to the hen unbroken, and then watching as the chick hatches. <laughs> Accepting untruth of this radical kind requires a blatant abandonment of reason. Klemper's descriptions of losing friends in Germany in 1933 over the issue of magical thinking bring eerily true today. One of his former students implored him to, quote, abandon yourself to your feelings, and you must always focus on the Führer's greatness, rather than the discomfort you are feeling at present. Twelve years later, after all the atrocities, and at the end of a war that Germany had clearly lost, an amputated soldier told Klemper that Hitler, quote, has never lied yet. I believe in Hitler. The final mode is misplaced faith. It involves the sort of self-deifying claims the president made when he said that, quote, I alone can solve it, or, quote, I am your voice. When faith descends from heaven to earth in this way, no room remains for the small truths or individual discernment experience. What terrified Klimper was the way that this transition seemed permanent. Once truth had become oracular rather than factual, evidence was irrelevant. At the end of the war, a worker told Klimper that, quote, understanding is useless. You have to have faith. I believe in the Führer. Yeah. Um, Eugène Ionesco, the great Romanian playwright watched one friend after another slip away into the language of fascism in the 1930s. The experience became the basis for his 1959 absurdist play, Rhinoceros, in which those who fall prey to propaganda are transformed into giant horned beasts. Of his own personal experiences, Ionesco wrote, quote, university professors, students, intellectuals were turning Nazi, becoming iron guards, one after the other. At the beginning, certainly they were not Nazis. About 15 of us would get together to talk and to try to find arguments opposing theirs. 
It was not easy. From time to time, one of our friends said, I don't agree with them to be sure, but on certain points, nevertheless, I must admit, for example, the Jews, etc. And this was a symptom. Three weeks later, this person would become a Nazi. He was caught in a mechanism. He accepted everything. He became a rhinoceros. Towards the end, only three or four of us were still resisting. UNESCO's aim was to help us see just how bizarre propaganda actually is, but how normal it seems to those who yield to it. By using the absurd image of the rhinoceros, UNESCO was trying to shock people into noticing the strangeness of what was actually happening. The rhinoceri are roaming through our neurological savannas. We now find ourselves very much concerned with something we call post-truth, and we tend to think that, it, that its scorn of everyday facts and its construction of alternative realities is something new or postmodern. But there is little here that George Orwell did not capture seven decades ago in his notion of doublethink. In his philosophy, post-truth restores precisely the fascist attitude to truth. And that is why there is nothing in our world that would startle Comfer or UNESCO. Fascists despised the, the small truths of daily existence, loved slogans that resonated like a new religion, and preferred cre creative myths to history of journalism. They used new media, which at the time was radio, to create a drumbeat of propaganda that aroused feelings before people had time to ascertain facts. And now, as then, many people confused faith in a hugely flawed leader with the truth about the world we all share. Post-truth is pre-fascism. Thanks. Before uh, you're all bursting with questions, uh, but I'm going to take the opportunity to ask uh, a few of my own and <clears throat> things that I've been uh, meaning to ask uh, Professor Snyder since I since I read the book and uh, the book has and then I'll and then I'll, we'll, we'll open it up to uh, questions and answers. Um, thank you so much for this uh, really enlightening talk. The the book has uh, is both a commentary on the, the, the past and at the same time it's a, it's a commentary on the present. So some of my questions are really about the link between, between those two things. Um, I guess one question <clears throat> revolves around uh, how applicable in fact, applicable in fact, is the uh, sort of the setting <coughs> of totalitarianism in the 20th century to what we're seeing now um, in the United States. Uh, one kind of counter argument to some of these arguments would be that we're nowhere near uh, 1930s Germany uh, or uh, sort of Eastern Europe under under communism. We still have relatively healthy institutions. We have checks and balances. We have robust uh, civil society. So I guess this is more of a just a general question. When you when you wrote this. Uh, originally and as it developed it into a book, how much of a, a match did you see between, or do you see between uh, some of these past moments uh, that are terrifying and you describe very vividly and have described in your scholarship and, and what we are actually seeing politically now uh, in, in the United States? So of course, much of this has to be guided by intuition. So if, I, if I waited for, for certainty, I'd have to wait 60 years, you know, just like we do when we write, when we write history books. But the, the intuitions come from certain places. One of them has to do with, um, well, with what Wiesbaden you know, Borska said. We, we know ourselves only insofar as we have been tested. And I, this may be an accident of the way I've lived my life, um, but I haven't seen so many Americans tested in the way that I've seen, for example, Ukrainians, Russians, 
tested. And having not seen us tested, I'm not convinced that we would pass the test, right? It's, in a way, it's as simple as that. You know, I, I'm not actually from Missouri, but you know, we're all, from, we should be from Missouri. Show me, right? Show me that Americans are actually willing to take risks for this thing that they so happily called freedom. Certainly, one sees examples of it, but I haven't seen Americans tested the way I've seen other people tested. And when I've seen Americans, you know, with, the, with our exceptions, there are many exceptions, but when I've seen Americans in situations similar to those like I've seen Europeans in, it's not as though the Americans have behaved like supermen, right? They have been, if anything, slightly more prone to take um, the, 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 the mental and physical train of normalization, right, or making excuses for oneself. So that's, that's part of it, the, the absence of testing. Um, the, and this, this plays very, very hard on the issue of institutions. Because if there was, I mean, again, remember, I wrote all this before people even had time to start normalizing, right? The great normalization cliches hadn't even developed when I finished writing this book, and yet they're in the book. Um, one of the big normalization cliches is the institutions. You know, we have the wonderful institutions. Do we? Really? Right? With, I mean, with the voter suppression and the gerrymandering and the unlimited money in politics and the smaller the two parties holding control of all chambers of government with a Congress that is unable to carry out investigation of high treason, right? The second chamber cannot even carry out competently an investigation of high treason. Cannot even name it for what it is when it so obviously is that. Right? I mean, perhaps he's not, perhaps the president is not guilty, but this is this is what the stakes actually are. We all know that Russia intervened in the United States election. If the Trump if the Trump campaign colluded in that, that is obviously high treason. The Congress is unable to frame it that way, let alone carry out an investigation. A Congress where the chief investigator runs to the White House to tell the president what's happening is not a second chamber of government. So, do we have these institutions? And do we have them in the mind of the executive? If the executive says, so-called judges, he's imagining a world in which there's not an independent judiciary. That's quite clear in that formulation. If the executive says that journalists are, quote, the enemies of the people, he's imagining a world in which journalism, or if Mr. Bannon calls journalists the opposition party, they are imagining a world in which journalism, the exchange of ideas, does not check power. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm waiting to be convinced about the institutions. My basic thought is that this is not an ask what, you know, it's not an ask what institutions can do for you moment. It's an ask what you can do for, for the institutions moment. And then finally, the final thing I would say about totalitarianism is, and everybody who works on this will know these things, it's, the comparison point is not 1942 in Nazi Germany. The comparison point is 1933. And it's not a perfect comparison, but 1933 feels a lot more like 2017 than 1942 does. And, and in, my own, in my own work, right, I mean, in Black Earth, I spent a whole lot of time explaining that an authoritarian regime change is not actually enough for, enough for a Holocaust, right? In this book, I'm concerned with 1933 and not with 1942. And, and so I'm leaning much more heavily on Clem Brewer and, and, and German historians on the parts where I think they are really strong, which is 1933. It's about the beginning, not the end. And the question is whether we're at the beginning, right? When, when we say, well, you know, we haven't reached the one-party state yet, um, you're kind of inviting the one-party state to, to, to happen. And finally, on the word totalitarianism, I actually think 2007, 2016 was much more totalitarian than we've begun to grasp, and that's because electronically, right? I mean, we, totalitarianism is not about the all-powerful state. There's no all-powerful state. There can't be an all-powerful state. Totalitarianism is about the 
the rubbing away of the difference between public life and private life, right? That's how you become unfree, and that's how power works in totalitarianism. You don't have any private life to go back to. And we, we watched that play out in 2016, the hacking of people's emails, right? Even if there might be a public interest in that's relevant to those emails, the fact that an agency, be it American or Russian, can, can get into your private life means that you don't have a private life. And we just let it happen, right? For the most part, we just watched it happen and just commented on it as though it was normal that somebody's e private emails are being released to, to all of us. That's actually totalitarian, right? You cannot, it's very hard for a politician or anyone else to have a normal life if there's no compartmentalization between public and private. So in some respects, we're, we're, very, we're much further along than we think. We've already let things happen, um, which, you know, which Hannah Arendt would have been shocked by. Thanks. So uh, that brings me to another question, which is about um, democracy itself uh, in, in, in the United States in historical perspective. You touch on this in, in the book when you describe the reasons that people um, supported fascism in the first place or supported communism originally in, 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 in other places. Um, these were responses to a major you know, global change and, 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 and national change. Um, now, in the United States, we one argument might be, well, uh, you know, the election of Donald Trump uh, needs to be understood as a response to deep-seated problems, some of which you, you, you talked on. So we have a democracy problem. If we think about uh, Trump as somehow illegitimate as a president, do we also then negate some of the reasons why people voted for him in response to events that we might also consider harmful to democracy, let's say, or harmful to our, to our institutions. How do we balance between the desire to protect democracy on the one hand and also wanting to respect the sort of the democratic choice of the word that the American people have made? Yeah, so a couple of things about that. The first is that I think the election helps us very much to understand the, the true shape of globalization. The, the, not, the globalization isn't just a, it isn't a teleology where um, one neutral thing, you know, markets leads to a desirable thing, democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, globalization can be, you know, if I can put it normatively, negative in a couple of ways. One is that globalization spreads ideas that one doesn't like, right? I mean, there was a fascist globalization in the, 19, in the 1920s. Fascist ideas spread from society to society, and not just in, in Europe, also to the United States. I mean, so I'm not an American historian. It seems to me we got rather lucky in the 19. 30s, it also seems to me that the people who are in the White House now are quite aware of that. The way they're thinking about things is we need to replay the 1930s without the FDR part, right? And see, and see where that leads us. But you all remember, you all remember what America First means, right? America First is anti anti fascism. That's what America First is. And now we officially, it's been branded, have an America First foreign policy. We officially, it's been branded, have an America First energy policy. I'm sure there are a number of others on the White House homepage that I just haven't kept, kept, kept up with. So globalization can be negative in that sense. Globalization can spread ideas. And it's not that what's happening now is just like the 1920s, but it's very clear, I think anyone who's been observing, that certain kinds of um, anti-gay ideas, certain kinds of Christian ideas have been circulating among white supremacists in the United States through Europe to Russia and, and back by way of, often by way of simple direct meetings that we know about. Um, so there's that. The other thing about globalization, and again, this is obvious from the first globalization, is that it breeds it breeds inequality at an important fractal level. So even if you're like, you know, if you look at the world in a, in a Hillary Clinton type way or a Barack Obama type way, you can say, yes, you know, on average things are getting better in 
Yeah, sure, they, 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 they are. But if you look at it from Appalachia, um, as I spent a little tiny bit of time trying to do, you can see that there are actually not just subjective, but you know, objective, as far as that's a, a good word, objectively, um, objectively increasing inequalities. And those objective inequalities become subjective when people start to think, well, I'm never going to make anything with my life. Or my, I'm, I failed and my children are going to fail harder. Right? When people reach that state of thinking, then they look for shortcuts. And Trump, um, I mean, very eloquently, it must be said, you know, if you haven't watched the rally, you should watch the rallies, very eloquently gave people those kinds of, of, of shortcuts. And I think that's, that is a, that's a response to globalization. I think anyone who wants to oppose Trump politically, um, you know, as opposed to what I'm trying to do in terms of articulating resistance, would have to have some account of how we're going to handle inequality in this country. If you cannot handle inequality, you're never going to get your, you're never going to be able to, to deal with this kind of a phenomenon. And then the final thing I would say is the democracy part. I mean, democracy in the United States is aspirational. We are not a democracy. I mean, we're, we were always meant to be a mixed government, which I think is rather a good thing. But we, you know, we've only been really legally democracies since the civil. I mean, again, like there are American historians here, you can correct me on all this, right? You'll get your chance. But I mean, since the Civil Rights Act, let's say we've been a democracy, and and even and even now, the fact that um, you know, if if you have five billion dollars and I don't, um, which as far as I know is not the case. Um, you just effectively have far more votes than I do, right? I mean, since Citizens United, we basically had a Habsburg-style, um, a Habsburg-style system where people who are very rich de facto have everybody votes, but people who are very rich just have votes that happen to count for thousands of times more than very poor people's votes, right? That's how the Habsburgs handled handled democracy until fairly late in the day. That is basically what we have, right? If I mean, we we, we so, social scientists have shown the direct relationship between funding for campaigns and how they turn out and it's it's unfortunately much more straightforward than we might wish that it would be. Um, you know, when, when when people who don't like in the state of Ohio, people very invest very heavily in, in federal races in the state of Ohio and they swing the results, even though they have nothing to do with Ohio and they you know, it doesn't matter anything to them personally. And that's, you know, frankly not democracy. So democracy is aspiration in this country. I mean it's it's a free country compared to other places. But Again, if people are going, to, if we're going to get over this or through this, it's not by, it's not going to be by saying, "Oh, 2016 was great." We just have to get back to 2016. People are going to have to have some kind of notion. I'm not the person to articulate, but some kind of notion of how America becomes a democratic country. Great. Last question, and this has to do with being here at the at the um, Kennedy School. So we are a policy school. Most, you know, our students are, for the most part, training to work in government. <laughs> Uh, in institutions. Uh, so if we take this account, and if you're uh, giving advice, a lot of the advice seems to be about, implicitly about civil society, uh, about ways to be good citizens in the face of, of this threat to our institutions and to democracy. But what is a student of public policy to do in this world, right? So if they graduate from here, do they um, go and work for the government in the hope of doing the best they can um, in light of the situation, or do they simply sit out? I guess the other way of, of framing this question is, uh, you know, do people participate and try to make this just a tiny little bit better, um, or do they simply say, this is, this is not for me, I need to look for a new line of work, maybe, you know, <coughs> So what you're describing is, as you can imagine, is, is a conversation that I have with individuals all the time. And in general, I think I'd rather keep it at that level because I think a lot hangs on 
what the person thinks they're trying to do and who the, who the person is. My, my, my general view, though, is that um, public civil servants, uh, public servants, civil servants, like lawyers, like members of other professions, um, are indispensable to this kind of regime change. So if you are a civil servant, there are many things you can do. You can, uh, you can, you can follow some kind of code of ethics. You can resign. What, what you must, what we've learned from the 1930s and other situations, communist regime changes too, what, what we may not do is just go day to day and do whatever comes across our desk, right? That is one thing that we very definitely have learned that we cannot do. So whether people are joining civil service, whether they're already in the civil service, um, they have to have some lines that they won't cross. If there aren't such lines, then, then you can very easily end up taking part in things. And one sees, I mean, one sees in the US civil service now, I mean, I'm no expert, but just anecdotally, how some bureaucracies are reacting differently than others, okay. right? How some people are reacting differently than, than others. Okay. So the uh, floor is open. We have two uh, microphones. This event is being recorded. So there's a microphone, I think, on this side and a microphone on that side. So if you have a question, I guess just raise your hand and we'll get the, we'll get the microphone to you. Let's maybe start with this young gentleman over here. What's the gender when you call on people? Women, men? I will do that. Um, hi, I'm, uh, my name's Philip, I'm a sophomore at the college. Just one quick comment and question. On the difference between the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity, there's a Goldman Sachs recruiting event on campus that apparently 600 of my peers are at um, right now. So. It's not that different than Yale. Oh, um, yeah, no, no. <laughs> but um, more, more seriously, um, if you're making the historical comparison to the rise of fascism and the rise of communism, it seems like a relevant part of that is the historical comparison to the societies that they came from, which in many ways, especially in the places where worse things happened, were either more decadent or more out of touch or more decaying or <coughs> disrupted societies. And also, not only in Nazi Germany, but during the Spanish Civil War, the presence of real revolutionaries drove a lot of right-thinking, good-hearted people into the arms of the right because of the fear of the radical revolutionary left. So in order to just interrogating your analogy a little bit more, should we be a lot more worried about the state of our society than the Washington Consensus suggests, and in what ways, and also, how to think about the resistance and the sort of very radical movements that have risen on the left, is it possible that they'll have a negative effect on the great mass of the middle of the American people? Okay, so it's, the, the, the generic response would be something like, of, of course we're not gonna get a perfect or even a very good match between America 2017 and Czechoslovakia 46, which is one that, if you like, the comprehends. Um, or Germany 1933, um, or Russia 1917. That said, I think in this, not you and your question, but in general in this country, we tend to lean towards the exoticization of those cases. It's certainly my experience, in speak, I mean, I've been speaking about these subjects now for quite a long time, um, long before it seems so, so immediately pertinent. And my, my sense has always been that Americans lean very hard on the one thing that they think makes this totally different from their own experience. And I guess what I'm suggesting is just a different epistemic or a different empathetic bias. Let's look for the things that are a little similar instead. I mean, let's say, let's accept that 99% of the time it's, it might be harmless to say, well, there's no swastika, everything's fine. But 1% of the time, 
we have to take the opposite view and say, okay, despite the differences, now in this exceptional moment, let's look for the similarities. And I think when you adopt that view, then some striking similarities actually do start to, to emerge, and they're, they're one of the subjects of the book. I mean, just give you a trivial example. What were, the, what, what were the SS and the SA at the beginning? They were a security detail that cleared protesters out of rallies, right? Um, and and right, it's the honor to push this, right? And you actually, in some of the exchanges at Hitler's rallies where like he pointed the people and, and had then had this private security detail, the thing that was later called the SA, throw people out, they're, they're striking, right? So if you just, if you tilt, if you tilt and you say, okay, I would accept there might be similarities, you, you, you see them. A broad similarity, and I, I tried to suggest this earlier, has to do with globalization. It's not that our globalization is challenged in exactly the same way, but the arc of expanding world trade and then ideological centrist or left-wing assumptions about what kinds of you know, what kinds of kilos are awaiting us um, that, that, that is actually rather similar from the 19 let's say the 1990s to the 1890s we haven't had a first world war in the great depression but we have had we have had a collapse that globalization we have had some of the associated mental emotional psychological responses to it the polarization that's arisen has been different you're absolutely right about that. It's, it's very important to the history of fascism that there was communism. I mean, we can disagree about just how to formulate that, but it's it's very important that to you know to Mussolini that there was communism. It's hard to imagine Mussolini without 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 Lenin in lots of ways. Not only just as a reaction against, but also as a, his admiration for and his emulation of. Um, but there is polarization, and I mean, one thing that when I left, you know, let's let's put the what you're calling Washington as I mean. <laughs> I'm not like the great anthropologist, but like when 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 I did go out and talk to Trump voters, one of the things I realized was that the polarization was much more intense than I realized in, in the mental landscape, right? That the things that were laughed off here were just taken to be true there. And and putting aside the issue of how that came to be, it was actually much more striking than I'd expected it to be. And the inequality too. I think the inequality, or maybe the subjective care of inequality, we don't have unemployment on, on the books the way that Germany did during the Great Depression, but I think we have a lot more, especially male, underemployment in this country than, than, than I mean, I, I, now I'm starting to sound like actually Trump, but I think you may have a point here. I think there there is a lot of off the books or half on the books underemployment in this country, and there are a lot of men in the parts of the world, that parts of the country that voted heavily for Trump, who feel that in certain ways. I mean, without going too much into it, there's a gender component here, which I find rather similar to some of the gender history of, of, of fascism, where people look for, I used the phrase shortcuts earlier, so I use it again, shortcuts to masculinity, right? You're not getting the day-to-day, -day, pulling the wagon, having a job, getting the salary, having a family, and so you look for something else, something more glamorous, something quicker, something more symbolic. And again, Trump was very good at offering that. I mean, he was kind of, he was a walking, he was like a, a walking offering of fragile masculinity, right? I and mean, he, he normalized fragile masculinity. He made it okay. He made, he, he made it. The, he made it. He made an acceptable condition. So there are ways in which it's in, in which it's a little bit more similar. But you know, above all, I would say that like the, the book is not only about national socialism. You know, those examples tend to rise to the top because they're the ones we find most familiar, most dramatic. But it, the book actually, you know, Czechoslovakia in 1946 is a different situation. Not you know it, it's communism, but it, the people in Czechoslovakia and Prague in 1946 were rather similar to ourselves. Um, the, 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 I think the important thing is to recognize that not it, we don't have to be just like any one case, since there are a broad number of cases, right? And or to put it a different way, 
people looking at the US in 2016 almost never said, oh, this is a country which is ripe for national populist triumph. And yet it turned out to be, right? So you know, what, what else might we be, be ripe for? This is a really tremendous, uh, tremendous talk and really wonderful comments by uh, Professor Tenkin as well. So I actually, I'm a colleague of Moshe because I talk to Moshe all the time and I always go to his office with my hair on fire and say, I just read this in Shirer's book, uh, you know, America looks exactly like, uh, and he calms me down. But you said something that I thought was really uh, insightful and I wanted to get you to elaborate on a little bit more. For me, the question is, about that, about the 1930s. Well, the US, if the US was ripe for a turn to fascism at any time, it should have been during the Great Depression. How did we avoid it then? And are the, is there something about how we avoided it then that might uh, give us some cause for optimism about how we will avoid it now? Okay, no, okay. So that, that, that I'm gonna answer that in a slightly different way. Because I see that like, your hair goes back really quickly. He's the one who calms me down. Okay. Um, I'm avoiding hideous comparisons. Um, the uh, the 1930s are really interesting, and again, like there are there are actual American. Like I'm an American, I'm a historian, but I'm not an American historian, right? Just like Tony used to say, or I used to say about Tony, like he. He was American, he was a Jew, but he was definitely not an American Jew. Like, I'm an American, I'm a historian, but I'm not an American historian. So, you know, all of this is with an asterisk and an appropriately large grain of salt. But it seems to me that, um, when I look at, again, when I look at the 1930s in the US, when I look at, for example, congressional debates, or um, newspaper op-eds, or looking back in the early 20s, that the kinds of things which the newspapers published about the Bolshevik Revolution and his Jewish character, the kinds of tracts of protocols which prominent Americans funded or widely circulated. When I look in my own anecdotal, amateurist way at public discourse in the US in the 20s and 30s, it doesn't seem to me to be so strikingly different from public discourse in European countries, not better, that I know better. And in fact, it seems to be worse than a lot of them in terms of attitudes towards refugees and Jews, and, 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 and refugee Jews. And it's interesting and striking, by the way, that the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, um, which in so many ways is a wonderful institution, is just now about to open their first exhibition on how Americans reacted to Jewish refugees in the 1930s, right? Which is a very, very difficult question for this country to handle because we have the myth that, you know, we were nice and we went to, we went to Europe to save the Jews and we liberated Auschwitz. And so we didn't liberate Auschwitz. Everyone knows that, right? We didn't liberate Auschwitz. Was we didn't liberate any of the death facilities unless you count like places like Mauthausen, which was a camp. Um, but the, 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 or horrible camp, of course. But my, my point is, with the 30s, I agree with you. Um, we, I, I think we basically got lucky. You know, there were, there were three ways out of the 30s. You know, one, one was communism. You know, and again, like, if you look at like, the cover of it, Fortune, from, I think July 32, it's like this, I think July 32, there's this, what was it, or Forbes, I forget, Fortune, it wasn't in Fortune, Forbes wasn't alive yet. So Fortune in 1932, there's this beautiful um, May Day Parade, right? Beautiful, beautiful, I think it was Neruda who painted it. Beautiful May Day Parade as the cover because the Soviet Union looked like an answer to Great Depression, as did fascism, right? I mean, the idea that, so the, that liberalism and democracy didn't go together, everybody had figured that out by 1930, that the whole package had failed. Everybody knew that by 1930. I mean, the Easter, the, the, the polls, like, I, I, Americanists always tell me, you can't talk about liberal democracy in the 1930s. No one ever talked about liberal democracy. That's not true. I mean, the, the East Europeans said, 
they had a, they said demo liberalism. They had like merged liberals and democracy into one concept and with the notion that this demo demo liberalism has failed. It's over. It's done. And the only question is, which way are we going? Extreme right or extreme left? And of course, there was another way, which is Keynes and Roosevelt, and you know, and muddling through and getting lucky and having a world war, you know, that kind of thing, which was what <laughs> Roosevelt offered. So we were in a situation which was not so different. This goes back to the question about society. We were not so different. I think in some ways we were probably worse than. I mean, to take like take places like Latvia and Lithuania, there was more public anti-Semitism here than there was in those countries. And yet, you know, when we look at the Holocaust numbers in Latvia and Lithuania, we would never believe that. Right? But public anti-Semitism was much more prominent here than it was in those places in the 30s. So um, where am I going? Where I'm going is because I'm going to the the question. And what worries me, and where I can't come up right happy about this, is, is that so much of the rhetoric of the Trump administration is about making the natural retrospect of the American right, not the 1950s. You know, the 1950s have their own problems, right? The whole point about the 50s is that there hasn't been a Civil Rights Act and there hasn't been immigration. Okay, I get that. So that's, I don't agree, but I get that. That's one focus. When you make, but in the 1950s, we had, we had already participated in the Second World War on, on one side and not on the other, and we had the beginnings of a welfare state. When you make the, the 1930s the object of right-wing nostalgia, which Mr. Bannon does, um, you're doing something else. You're putting the, the, the Second World War into question. Right? Our participation in the Second World War is put into question, which is why they, they couldn't do Holocaust Remembrance Day. They can't do Holocaust Remembrance Day because the American participation in the Second World War is not part of the story. They're trying to go back to the 1930s in which we wouldn't have done that. They're trying to go back to what was perhaps the dominant current in the 1930s, the Lindbergh current, right? That we ought not to do this. So the things that we did in the 1930s were we, we entered the World War on, on one side and not the other, which is very important, right? I mean, countries that are on one, I mean, it's, it seems obvious what side you're on, but the Soviet Union was on both sides and they still haven't, Sort that out, and and you know Romania and Hungary and so on were on the German side. Italy had tens of thousands of troops die at Stalingrad. Who remembers that, right? So you know people still. It's, it's a big problem what side you're on, and there's no relationship between what side you're on and what kind of democracy you are now, right? Look at the Germans, who are the best, you know, the best big country democracy in the history of the world, probably. Um, so we 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 were lucky. We were fortunate to be on one side of the Second World War, and not the other, and we were fortunate to have been in a welfare state. And what worries me is it's precisely that. That history and also that myth, which is being put up into question now. Uh, let's do the end. Hi, I'm Anna Thorne. I'm UMass Boston. I, uh, oh, okay. I am a Tim Snyder movie. I think I've read almost everything you've written, including this two times. I think what's most important about what you're saying and what you've been writing, even when you weren't writing about this time, is how deep this is, particularly in the US. I'm a Southerner, right? The South is American fascism, was American fascism, and is the roots of American fascism. And it was never identified as such, never the racism that's so endemic there is not fully the same as it is everywhere else. And it's the place where the home it's the homeland of American fascism. And when I think about what you're talking about now in this book, and you talk about racism in this book too, but I I feel like that we can't forget how serious that history is and how much it's totally ignored, denied. I mean, you know, different times it sort of was up, but the deep history of the American fascist racist state that comes out of slavery keeps getting forgotten, denied, not wanting to be faced. And unless we face it and really address it, we're gonna, maybe we'll survive this time. I'm not sure we will, but for sure we're not, we're not gonna survive the next one. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I've been concerned with in, in my other work is to establish, um, more or less I think it's Hannah Arendt did, yes. the, the essentially arbitrary character of racism. So we have, you know, we have racism as pigmentation prejudice. Um, you can be, a, but you can also be what we would think of as a white person and be a racist towards Ukrainian. You, know, you can call Ukrainian an African, which is not to belittle the particular character and strength of American racism, but rather to show its universally arbitrary character. And I think it helps us a bit. At least I like to think it does to get our minds around that kind of historical plasticity of of, of the whole thing. Because that moves us away from American exceptionalist position, where we might think we're, we oh, we have to always have this particular thing that that we have. A couple, I, I can't. I obviously can't. I agree with you, and I can't solve it in this answer. But I'm going to point. I'm going to point to two or three things that I think are, are interesting. One, I'm sure everybody in this room has noticed this. One is is the kind of epistemic racism that we have. So, like you know, so Sean Spicer, for example, for, for me, like th there is no reason to believe Sean Spicer except that he's a white guy with a tie. Which has ruined the white guy in a tie look for me. <laughs> when I call this, I don't know where else to go. <laughs> so I'm sort of, I'm, yeah. So maybe so I'm always hoping somebody's going to help me with that. Um, but like, with Mr. Trump, I mean, imagine if we had a black man or a Hispanic man who would have the multiple wives and the confusing array of children. You know, you just, you just wouldn't, it just wouldn't be, let alone all the other stuff, right? And then what he talks about, like, I killed somebody on Fifth Avenue. If a black man said, if I killed somebody on Fifth Avenue, right? You know that Mr. Trump said this. He said, if I, kill, I, could, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and nobody would care. If a black man said that, right? I mean, we, it just not, and, and the stuff about the women, you know, the, the, the harassment and the aggression. This would have completely different resonance in this country, and and you know that's the kind of thing that, that, that white folks often deny, but it's that's just so obviously the, the case. Second second observation related, um, the politics of white supremacy, which are you know the politics of white supremacy are a bit like the politics of fascism in Eastern Europe in the 30s in a certain way, which is that you I'll say with Eastern Europe because that's where I'm more comfortable. One of the reasons you go to the peasants is because you're not doing anything for them, right? So, so, so far-right nationalism, or the new-right nationalism, of which fascism was a kind, happens in the 30s, partly because land reform doesn't work out in the 1920s. And you basically go, you go to the peasants and you say, we glorify you, we want to be you, we sing your songs, yada, yada, you know, we wear your, we wear your shirts. Um, and it's a, that's the moment you've actually given up on doing anything for people. And that's the trade, right? We're gonna have a cultural politics instead of a social politics. In the US, the way white supremacy works, I mean, white supremacy, of course, hurts blacks most directly, but it's also meant to punish the majority of whites. Because the idea is that a small, in, in, in earlier white supremacy texts, this is totally explicit, by the way, the idea is that there's, a, there's an upper caste of whites whose historical duty it is to exploit the vast majority of whites. Um, and the way you exploit them is you, might, you direct their attention at the blacks, right? And that's the same pattern of politics. We're not going to do anything for you. We're going to allow inequality to get to grow great. You know, we'll take away your health insurance, whatever. Um, uh, but but you know, but, but the idea of white supremacy is not that whites are going to do better than blacks. It's that a few whites are going to do better than the vast majority of whites, and that's a historical pattern. Third thing, demographics. One of the one of the politics of inevitability. I don't mention the book, but. You know, there, there are a bunch that, that may be crazy. I mean, one is the idea that the youth are going to save us, the youth are not going to save us, the youth are never going to save us. You know, there's a 50-50 chance that they're going to be worse. Why don't people realize this, right? <laughs> <laughs> like your friends, they're worse, right? <laughs> 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 
I'm on it. They're like, you're, you're like, you know, I'm not, okay, I'm not going to get personal about this since I don't know but, but that, like, why do people always think the youth are going to rescue? That makes no sense. There's at least a, there's a decent chance that they're going to be, whatever your measure is, of course, they're going to be worse. And if you educate them to say, that there's no history, then they're probably going to be worse. Or if yes. you, you know, the Russian, the Russian variant, you tell them Stalin's a good manager, probably they're going to be worse, right? I mean, everybody in Eastern Europe said, well, we're going to need a fresh generation. <laughs> Maybe that's a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition. You can't just let it happen. Like there's an incubator and you're just going to like let it incubate and just watch it behind plexiglass, you know? They have, people have to be educated and we blew it, basically. I mean, with apologies. Apologies of a double character, right? We blew it. Um, so, 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 um, oh, so demography is where I was going. So one of the things, one of the politics I know that makes me crazy is the idea that they're going to help us, right? The youth in America are more authoritarian than their elders. You know, right? The surveys are pretty unambiguous about this. And this is true in Europe as well. Um, and. And the, another one which makes me crazy is demography. You know, the Democrats thinking, well, as long as we have a president, you know, demography's on our side. No, it's not. Demography is not on your side because what happens is that when the, when the counties that were predominantly white that, that you believe are yours become less predominantly white, the white people go to the Republicans. I mean, it, it's so you cannot count on the fact that there are more there are more Hispanics to mean the country's going to become more democratic. It's just not true. It's just because it, you can't you, know, you can't look at this from you can't look at it at the unit level of the whole nation. You have to look at it at the unit level of the county or something, the precinct, or whatever. And at that level, having more Hispanics doesn't actually flip counties to Democrats it, because because white people, you know, for whatever reason, I, we can't talk about it enough length to get to this. But white people then flip over Republicans on a, on a large scale all across. So there is no demography doesn't doesn't help you because of the way American racism works. So anyway, there we are. Um, Alex Kesar here asked a question. Thank you. Thank you for this talk and for your appearance on Bill Maher last Friday night, which I very much enjoyed. Um, but I have to confess, I am an American historian. But I'm speaking not, not to impose some expert corrected. I actually agree with a lot of what you said, but I want to push up a couple of points a little bit further. Which is, you, you made the comment that one really couldn't talk about democracy in the United States until the Civil Rights Act. I, I, actually, I, I think it's probably 19, it's 1970, I think, more or less, that went to talk about the United States as having a, a, a functioning democracy. Now, the, the, there are some implications that follow from that, and some of them I'm uncomfortable with, and I want to hear your comments about. But that means that if you, if you look at the long spectrum of you know, American history since 1789, or whatever, the democratic period is a short aberrational period. Okay, it's not, it's not, it's not the dominant story, and I think that that's also true of most other places, right? So then that kicks up a couple of other. I mean, one thing that kicks up is why should we think of democracy as the norm, and why should we expect democracies to endure? Uh, it does seem to me, well, even though you're, you're raising the warning flags. I think there's still a little bit built in to the, something that's, that's bred in all of us, which is a certain expectation that American democracy will endure. Shemla. No. So much for that. <laughs> you can never know to the end, but I really don't think I'm an American exceptionalist in that way, and I don't. The book certainly isn't built on that premise. I mean, I, you're actually articulating a very good answer to this question, which I wish I had formulated as well. I, I think it's, I think democracy is exceptional, and I think we've been 
I think we've been, I mean, I think our initial institutions were well designed, and I think we've been lucky every 70 years with presidents we've had at difficult moments. We got lucky with Lincoln, we got lucky with Roosevelt. And in certain ways, we got lucky with the first Bush, frankly, but um, we're not lucky now. But yeah, no, I, I, you make me, you know, at some level, you, I, I can't be sure about myself, but I, when I look at America, I think, yeah, you know, these people are not particularly more democratic than Hungarians. You know, I, I just, show me, I just don't see it. But, but, but I guess what I'm saying is, if the expectation, not only for us as Americans, but more broadly, is that democracies will not endure, then what? No, but it's a, norm, it's a normative book, right? So I'm saying, I mean, the book it has to be based on certain kinds of normative claims, which are half-articulated because it's a very short book. But I'm saying, you may like freedom in certain ways. You may not be aware how this is how this depends upon certain institutions. You're probably willing to sacrifice these institutions unless we think about it, right? Because once you sacrifice them, you won't be able to get back to the mental state where you like freedom, right? That's right. So we are <clears throat> nearing the end of this wonderful event. So what we're going to do now is actually collect uh, a, few, a few questions uh, for Professor Snyder. So I ask that you keep your questions as brief as possible with a question mark at the end so we can get a, a, a few in there. Is there any, yeah, how about definitely? We spend all our time on whether we agree with your history, but not on whether we agree with your lessons. Mm. And it seems to me that one could agree with your lessons without agreeing with your history. Oh, I hope so. And it with the, and so the but the one question I had is is that be reflective that you must be armed. I haven't read the book, but what does that mean? Because that's one lesson that one one, one lesson we might not agree with unless we agree with your history. Yeah. Okay. Let's collect. Let's collect a few more. See a few people. A few people in the back. This, this gentleman lives over uh, here. Excuse me. In the next one, please. The end. Um, I will try and keep this very, very brief. This is a South African accent, and um, I was 11 when apartheid ended. I wonder. This is unfair because you're a historian of Central and Eastern Europe, but I wonder if South Africa post 48 isn't maybe a good thing to look at. Keeping in mind two things. First of all, everyone at that stage thought it was a big surprise, it was a blip on the radar, no one expected the nationalists to win. Secondly, it took a long, long, long time until we got to the Group Areas Act, until we got to the Immorality Act. Um, I think that we need to consider this Trump election as something that's maybe the start of something much longer. I agree. time for two more questions. Then maybe this gentleman up here. Yeah. With the... <coughs> rank of people from secretary down to civil servants being emptied out and filled with Trump's people who are not apparently qualified to run the government, uh, should civil servants become the conscience of the country? Thank you. So uh, we tend to rationalize everything that comes our way, and that's the easiest way to explain things away. But judging um, uh, by what we know about the thirties and right now, is definitely the, the rise of irrationality. So there's something called the spirit of time, a huge magnets, and the people are going to the uh, uh, polarities and in, uh, in the rhinoceros, uh, Beranger definitely called it a disease. 
I don't know, slightest. <coughs> and um, so how, how do you handle this? The rational part of it. And uh, for example, uh, some uh, great American thinkers like Kurt Vonnegut just said that, well, the moment was structured that way. So my, my question to you is that, how would you explain this branded side guys? That something that made it possible for things like that had to happen not only in you know the United States but in Russia, in Poland, Hungary, maybe in France. What's your take on that? Okay, so let me try to take them in, in order. Um, be reflective if you must be armed. I'd really like the way you preface the question because I'd, I'd like to think that people coming from different perspectives would find different historical examples for at least some of the lessons. <coughs> the general case I'm making in the book is that history is good at moments like this to expand the bandwidth of imagination um, and to avoid the, the perhaps characteristic American sense that everything which happens to us is by definition new to all people. Right? Yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and so the, I, I then try to follow my own advice, which is to one of the, you know, there, there are lessons that have to do with civil society and so on, where I stress uh, that people ought to be doing the things that they are confident about, know they're good at, have friends who are similar and so on. I know something about East European history and so on. I'm staying here for Central European history. Um, as others have pointed out, some, someone who came from Latin American history or African American, African history, um, other people have made similar points discussion could have written something somewhere right now I couldn't have done it like, this is this is what I could do so be reflective if you must be armed comes from the specific character of the Holocaust which is something which is a phenomenon which despite the fact that we think we confront it all the time we actually tend to rationalize quite a bit our, our first association is, is with Auschwitz and then Auschwitz allows us to think it's mechanized and which isn't true and that the Germans didn't know which is definitely not true um, if, we, if we think that's Auschwitz, we get to the Einsatzgruppen, the Einsatzgruppen, we think, well, that's a small group of people, just a couple hundred, and look, magically, there's a couple, of, okay, a couple thousand. Those couple thousand magically shot two and a half million Jews, but of course they didn't, that's not how it happened. Um, most, of, most of the killers in the East, or the shooting pits, were not the Einsatzgruppen, but regular policemen, regular uniformed policemen, who were sometimes without training, um, were sent from German cities to the East, did unimaginable things, came back, and then behaved like they had before, and that's where this lesson comes from, that the Holocaust, as we understand it, wasn't a matter of you know, mechanization at Auschwitz, or even just a matter of highly trained, highly ideological young men commanding Einsatzgruppen. It was largely a matter of people who had not been much trained, or hadn't been trained at all, um, who did something radically different from their, everyday, from their everyday duties, when they were in a slightly different situation and in a different place, right? So it's about the policemen. The Holocaust couldn't happen without the policemen. Um, and you know, some of these lessons are pretty minimalist. I'm saying to the policemen, don't switch. I'm saying to the policemen, there, come, there can come orders which you must not accept, right? That's what, that, that's what that is all. And the army, right? I mean, I could, the same, I could tell you the same story, but I won't for reasons of time, with the Wehrmacht in, in the East, right? Be reflective if you must be armed. There's a different lesson about the paramilitaries. This one's about the army, it's about the about the police. South Africa 48, I completely agree. Um, and I think that's I think that's a very plausible shape you know, for an op-ed if you haven't already written it. Um, and it would have implications for how one resists. I mean, one of the things which makes me a little bit and I think there's like some white privilege about this actually too. The idea that like after whatever it is, 70 days, we're all tired. 
you know, right? Like, I'm sure you've heard this from some of your American friends. Like, okay, well, like, I put up a fight for a while. I wrote some emails, but now I'm tired. Or, you know, I marched a couple. You're, yeah, we're laughing, but come on. This is like, this is like, at least among white people, this is something people say a lot, right? And then, the, and then the response is, well, like, there are some people who have been kind of struggling for 15 generations, and, you know. Um, so th th that, I mean, that kind of argument is very important because it, it reminds us that this may be a matter, it, it may be a matter of months. I don't think so. I think it's a matter of years. You could be right it's a matter of decades. Um, and in any event, I mean, one of the arguments of the book, and this goes back to the earlier questions about how bad is it actually, one, and actually your question too, like how much the history has to be right, even if it's not as bad as I think it is, and I would caution that up to now it's always turned out to be worse, um, but even if it's as bad as I think it is, I, th I think it's worse than most people, but then in reality it's generally turned out to be worse than I think. Um, so it's not worse than you think, it's worse than I think. Um, the, e e e even if I'm wrong, that these kinds of practices would be useful in another kind of historical setup. So, I th and I think also in a setup like that one, many of these would be would be good practices. But I, I, I very much, I very much take your point and, and appreciate it. Um, the civil, so the civil service, be the conscience. I mean, it's interesting where, like, for where opposition comes from, right? Or not even not opposition, but like thoughtful reactions. You know, it's interesting. I mean, one can't predict it. Like, if I, if one had started from one's own bubble in November. I would not have thought, for example, that there would have been so much interesting reporting in USA Today, right? Yeah. But there has been. There's been a lot of, and they've actually broken some stories, you know, some interesting stories. There, there are places where interesting stuff is coming out of that one hadn't, one wouldn't have expected. Um, and so, so this, so, you know, so the civil servants be the conscience. Yeah, they, among other people. I mean, sure. Um, but it's it, there's a larger point I try to make in the book about vocations, which is that civil servants, lawyers, doctors, policemen. Have to have to have to have around them some notion of professional ethics, which defines certain limits, right? And they have to be able to censure people who go beyond those limits. Because one one of the ways that this thing that we call totalitarianism happens is that those various shells get broken into something the fascists call a corporate state, right? Or what the communists call a party state, where you still have the appearance of the different vocations, but in fact it's all you know it, it's all a transmission belt, or it's all a corporatist pyramid. And the professions have to be conscious about this, I think. And I see, actually, I mean, doctors, I, I, I see it among civil servants with, who are having some really interesting conversations among themselves, I'm sure you know. I see it with doctors. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from physicians all over the country who are saying, okay, I formed this group, I formed that group, I formed the other group. What should we do now, right? Which, of course, I'm sort of helpless to answer. But it's really, it's really interesting to see that some professions are, are thinking in this way. I think it's necessary. I think no one can be the conscience, though. I think there have to be a hundred, you know, a thousand sources of conscience. And then on the on your rationality, you're, we're, we're, of course we'd never get rid of it. I mean, the system that we had was was not did not assume that people were actually rational, right? The system that we had was a kind of control, you know, where you were allowed to make you were allowed to make a different mistake each time, basically. Like that's that's when democracy works. That's what it allows you to do. It allows you to make a different mistake, or what you think is a different mistake. Um, I think it was song by the Who. What you think is a different mistake each time, um, but. Why is this moment special? Why do we have the kind of polarization that we have? Part of it has to do with this, this inequality, and it's harder. It's hard, like like the relationship between the fractal inequality, um, the opiate abuse, right? Um, China, like there are these there are these maps, you know, like maps of where jobs have actually been lost to China, maps where opiate abuse is a horrifying problem in the United States, maps of where Trump got more than sixty percent of the vote, right? Those are strikingly similar maps. It turns out. And we just haven't had time to analyze how all that works. 
But there is something new, you know, which is the internet. And the internet's a very good example of the, like the globalization that we think, well, globalization is always going to, you know, if you look back at the way that people worried about the internet in the early 90s, it's like stupefyingly optimistic. It's like, the way, I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually know if people were so optimistic about the printing press or about radio at the beginning. And like the printing press was great. I mean, just 150 years of violent, you know, horrifying war, which killed a third of the European population. And then everything was okay, right? And the radio was fine. I mean, sure, there was fascism, right? There was fascism with the radio. And, you know, but after that, you know, so like each of these new communications technologies have some hiccups, right? And I think we may be with that in the internet. It's just hard for us to see it because we're in the middle of it. It may be that the internet will turn out to be this enlightening device. Thus far, it hasn't been, right? Americans know less about civics than they did before the internet. Americans have shorter attention spans. They spend more time in front of screens. Um, and they believe more things that aren't true, thanks to the internet. I mean, of course, that's all counterfactual, like what the world be like without the internet, who knows? But part of what's happening is that the internet in 2016 got ahead of us in its ability to generate counter-narratives to, you know, um, let's call it the Washington Consensus. And we didn't really grasp how powerful and widespread those counter-narratives were until the voting results came down. So the internet has this ability not only, it's not just that it spreads fake news, although it does, and people make it spread fake news. Um, just like people use the printing press, you know, if you happen to be like a believing Christian of a certain kind, people use the printing press to spread heresies, right? Um, it, uh, boy, that was a relativist thing I just said. I gotta go back and read lesson 10. Um, but, um, the, but, but, but it's not just that, it's also the internet has a special way of separating people from others, right? So one of the things that struck me when I actually went out to the world in September and October and talked to people um, who were gonna vote differently than I voted was that, that the first thing was like, I'd never seen this before, even in 14, um, where People were just surprised, like that sort of weird, I saw it a bunch of times, that weird, like that moment where people opened their eyes wider because they realized they were gonna have to talk to another person about politics, as opposed to just sitting in the basement and having their views affirmed over and over again, getting the neurological pleasure, right, out of having people in their Facebook feed affirmed, or not actually people, but robots, robots, Russians and Russian robots, affirmed <laughs> their political views, right? The internet has a way of separating ourselves from flesh and blood conversations. And that didn't really hit home for me until I tried to have those flesh and blood conversations in 2016. Because um, by 2016, my political views were anything like, you know, they're totally like in the middle, like, I can, you know, I can talk to, I have never had trouble talking to people on both parties. And it wasn't even the party affiliation, it was the like, am I really gonna have to talk to another person? Because you have any idea how many like pains are going on in my basement right now while I'm trying to talk to you? Like that was new. And I think that, that's, that's part of it, that the polarization isn't about ideas. It's partly the polarization is about not having to talk to people at all. All right, so um, <laughs> this was uh, absolutely fascinating and stimulating. You have been uh, familiarized and you have been warned. Um, so I uh, thank you all for coming and please join me in thanking You've been listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash. Thank you.